Chapter 4 of The Lake Mystery by Marvin Dana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Eve of Battle. Masters came suddenly on May Thurston that same afternoon as she chanced to be alone on the cottage porch. When he appeared so swiftly out of the wood, which was thick behind the house, the girl realized that he must have been lying in wait for this opportunity to meet her unobserved. The stealthiness of the act revolted her anew, and the disagreeable impression was in no wise relieved by the engineer's conversation or manner. "'Nothing. I found nothing at all,' he declared curtly. His large eyes were glowing with anger. "'I can't understand it.' His tone was full of rebellion against the injustice of fate. But, May began, her voice was hesitating, timid. Masters went on stormily, disregarding her. I mustn't give up, though, just because they've come. He nodded toward the cottage. You must introduce me at once. Then, get them outside to look about and I'll have another try at the gold. The girl was dismayed by his persistence. She wished to point out the danger of discovery, but the engineer would listen to no protests, and in the end, his inflexible will beat down her resistance. So, presently, Masters was duly introduced to Mrs. West and her daughter. His manner was now all suavity, he devoted himself to making a good impression, and in this he succeeded, for he was in fact usually attractive to women, though not to men, who regarded him with latent suspicion or open hostility, according to their various natures. In this instance, his handsome face, graceful, frank manner, and lively chat diverted and pleased the mother, while the more susceptible daughter found herself near to blushing under the earnest regard of a stranger so romantic of appearance and so respectfully, yet obviously, an admirer of her own charms. Indeed, though Masters was very discreet, his manner somehow caused the trouble in May's heart to swell, for now it was leavened with jealousy. Yet there was nothing overt, to which she might take exception. It was, rather, an intuition that warned her. But when she again found herself alone with her lover, she was confronted with offense in his first words. We must keep our engagement secret from them. Though May had had no thought of any present publicity for her romance, this peremptory command came with a shock. Why? she demanded. "'What do you mean, Hartley?' Masters became fluently plausible. His seeming candor disarmed criticism. "'Margaret West is a pretty girl,' he explained, smiling at last. "'And she is evidently aware of the fact. "'If she thinks I'm dangling, so to speak, a victim to her charms, "'she and her mother won't wonder any at my hanging around the place a good deal.' and it's Miss West's place now, you know. It wouldn't do for me to make myself too much at home here, just as your fiancé. 
she might be jealous. His smile over this none-too-delicate pleasantry was so caressing. His voice was so tender. He was so tall, so stalwart in picturesque fashion, so good to look on altogether, that May quite forgot her first instinct of indignation. After all, doubtless, he was right. "'But you won't let her think you really serious?' she stipulated. Master's face instantly grew grave. His voice took on a dignity almost rebuking. "'No, little girl,' he said, gently. "'That wouldn't be fair to you, or to her, or to me. "'But we'll keep our secret for a time.' "'And to this, albeit reluctantly,' May consented. "'That reluctance must have become open revolt.' Could she have known the inner workings of her lover's crafty and unscrupulous brain? For the fact of the matter was that the engineer had no sooner set eyes on Margaret West than new, daring plots began to shape themselves in his imagination. His heart thrilled at sight of her, his interest deepened second by second. He experienced, indeed, an attraction strange, dominant. The emotion was the more impressive inasmuch as it was totally unlike that with which May Thurston had inspired him. He had admired the secretary in rather a placid fashion. He had enjoyed her dainty appearance. He had been agreeably entertained by her lively intelligence. Most of all, he had received flattering unction to his vanity from the ease of his triumph over her heart. The case of Margaret was radically different. Even in the first interview with this girl, he found himself subject to a spell hitherto unknown in his experience of woman. Being by no means a fool, he guessed that here in truth was one actually to possess his love. That realization worked no sort of regeneration in the moral nature of the man. On the contrary, since he was essentially selfish, it served only to spur him on toward bold speculations as to all possible gains for himself. Since he knew the terms of the Abernethy will, a new scheme flashed on him within five minutes of his introduction to Margaret. If he should be unable to find the hidden treasure for himself, he would strive his utmost to prevent the success of Sack's temple in the quest— since failure on the heir's part would mean Margaret's inheritance of one-half the gold. By this means, although he would not secure the full amount of riches, he would at least become possessor of a moiety, for he would marry Margaret West. He felt no pang of regret for May Thurston, whom he planned to betray so basely. His sole concern was for his own advantage— the securing of the woman and the money that he desired fiercely. That he would succeed in this preposterous ambition, he did not doubt for a moment, confident of the favor with which the softer sex usually regarded him. He took the first step in his conscienceless scheme when he gazed with respectful admiration into the eyes of Margaret West. He took the second when he charged May Thurston to keep secret the troth he had plighted her. On the morning after the coming of Mrs. West and Margaret, the secretary received a telegram from Sachs Temple with the announcement that he and his friends would reach the lake that same afternoon. So, 
there now remained for the engineer less than one day of liberty in which to prosecute the hunt for the treasure for all his audacity masters knew that he could not dare to carry on the search during the interval even except with utmost caution lest he arouse the suspicions of the widow or her daughter he had passed most of the time since their coming in racking his brain with vain conjectures as to a possible clue with the hope of making actual investigation at a more propitious time now however the telegram warned him that his period was at an end the presence of the heir and his associates would effectually halt the engineer's operations and he realized the fact with bitterness of spirit thereafter he must perforce do what he might skulkingly ever cautious to avoid any least guess by any one as to his purpose but i'll keep an eye out he confided to may sullenly if they find a hint anywhere i'll beat them to the goal after all you'll see she shrank at his words something that was fast coming to be a habit with her but mr temple has the right to it you know she expostulated weakly if he gets it masters retorted with a sneer that lifted slightly the luxurious moustache only i'll see that he doesn't and anyhow i believe that he must be a pretty namby-pamby sort of chap fancy his bringing a band of helpers mr abernethy particularly said that he might do so may reminded her lover it seems a bit cowardly just the same masters maintained i'll win out yet i tell you may the fellow is handicapped he fears failure Sachs temple arrived at the foot of the lake in mid-afternoon and with him came roy morton billy walker and david thwing jake was awaiting the incoming train his weather-beaten face aglow with anticipation the terms of the will having become known to him he had developed what might be called a sporting interest in the issue after years of monotony excitement had jumped into his life therefore he now advanced toward the four young men with suitcases who had descended from the pullman and bobbed his head energetically his clean-shaven face wrinkled in a smile mr temple and party at calculate he remarked inquiringly looking from one to another i am mr temple said the heir with an answering smile as he stepped forward he indicated his companions with a gesture these are my friends come to help me on a bit of business i have in the neighborhood you know about it jake beamed joyously well now i've got some suspicionings as it were he admitted cautiously i hope you've left everybody well to hum oh i believe some in the city are complaining Sachs replied with apparent seriousness but the general health is about the average just so jake showed himself gratified well i'll lead you over to the motorboat billy walker groaned stertorously and we're not there even yet he exclaimed aghast 
Oh, putty-nigh, Jake made assurance. Only a matter of three mile on the lake. We'll get thar in a jiffy, in the shirt-so. The what? Sox questioned. That's the ordinary name old man Abernethy give a perfectly good boat, Jake replied complainingly. He said as how it meant kinda lively. The name must be Scherzo, Sachs explained to the unmusical and bewildered Billy Walker. The motorboat, you know. But Billy was not appeased. He kept at Jake's side as the party moved toward the landing, a furlong to the east from the station, and expressed his sentiments vehemently, though not lucidly, so far as the boatman was concerned. "'I'm given to understand,' he said severely to the puzzled Jake, "'that your craft is not merely a plain, slow-going, safe-and-sane-forth launch, but on the contrary, one of those cantankerous, speed-maniacal contraptions that scoots in diabolical and parabolical curves and squirts water all over the passengers. If so, I think I'll walk.' though I'm not fond of walking. Jake seized eagerly on the one intelligible phrase in Billy Walker's bombast. Nary squirt, he declared with emphasis. Old man Abernethy, he was ailin' just like you be, and I learned to nest the shirt so careful. Mighty careful, yes siree. The others, who had overheard laughed impudently at this naive reference to the invalidism of their friend, whose physical inertia was equal to his mental energy. At sight of the motorboat, Roy Morton gave critical attention, scanning it with the supercilious manner of one versed in the mysteries, as, indeed, he was. Unbidden, he ensconced himself at the engines, in the seat with Jake. Soon, however, his coldly inquiring expression softened to radiant satisfaction as he noted the smoothness of the start, the delicate adjustment from speed to speed, the rhythm of the perfectly tuned cylinders. Of a sudden, as he turned to stare at the wizened face of the old man at his side, Roy's eyes grew gently luminous. A smile that was tender curved the lips above the belligerent chin. He knew that Jake loved his engines, knew perfectly that the old man fairly doted on them, cherished them even as a lover his mistress. Because of the sympathy that he, too, had with such things, Roy respected the boatman mightily, began then and there to grow fond of the brown and shriveled face. Billy Walker, for his part, after the first moments of suspense, became convinced that his anticipations of disaster were little likely to be realized in fact, and thereafter he gave himself over to delighted contemplation of the wooded shores, which on either side sloped gracefully to the water's edge. David Thwing, too, gazed about on the newly budded beauty of the wilderness, with a content made keen by overlong sojourning in the places builded by men. It was only Sax Temple himself, alone in the stern chair, 
who looked around with eyes that just then recked not of the scenic loveliness, despite the appeal in such vistas to one of his beauty-loving temperament. But his whole interest now was centered on the quest that had brought him to this remote region. His roving glance was searching all the stretches of lake and forest wonderingly, hopefully, fearfully. Here was the place in which he must win or lose a fortune, according to the decree of the old man's whimsy. The desire of his dearest dreams surged in him, the challenge of ambition, the ideals of art. This wealth, once achieved, would give freedom to work according to his loftiest aspirations. A sudden fierce resolve burned in him. He would succeed, notwithstanding all difficulties in the path. Fate had given him opportunity. He would wrest it from victory as well. His face set itself sternly in lines of strength. And then, without any warning, the scherzo swung around a densely wooded point of the shore that had seemed almost to bar the narrow channel through which they had been passing thus far. Now, just before them, lay broad reaches of placid water, a mile in width there at hand, much wider in the distance beyond. Low mountains loomed undulant afar, whence the descending forests ran to a shore that wound hither and yon in innumerable inlets, coves and bays, broken often by cliffs. Yet, even now, Sack's temple gave no heed to the loveliness of the spectacle. Instead, his whole care was fixed on an uncouth, rambling structure that blotched a clearing visible along the west shore a mile away. It was the only dwelling to be seen anywhere, as far as I could reach. The seeker had no doubt that now, at last, he had his first sight of Abernethy's cottage, that spot in which his cunning must meet, and master, the cunning of a dead man, who had made grim jests with the gold he loved. End of chapter 4